Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of January 7th, 2019. Happy New Year, everyone. A quick note before we begin, if you're listening to this on iTunes, you may want to check out the exclusive other shows we do at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Jim and I have done hours of shows and everything from Disney attraction history to things that never got built and more. And it only appears at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Check it out today. And now let's bring in the man who knows how to get hydraulic fluid out of the carpet of a rented U-Haul van at night, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, what's buzzing? Well, we said it was hydraulic fluid. It was red. Can I really tell this story outside of the grand jury? Or? <laughs> I wouldn't. Let's, let's not okay, speak of it and, uh, and then okay. move on. Jim, uh, we'll, on this uh, episode, we're going to do a quick bit of uh, news and listener questions, and then we're going to talk about Alani in two parts. One part would be my recent stay there, and then you will give us the history and overview of that fabulous Hawaiian resort. How's that sound? Works for me. All right, let's start with uh, with news and listener questions, Jim. I want to mention that the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. And by the way, I, uh, Jim, I hear Storybook Destinations is doing a, uh, a Disney Cruise Line cruise June 19th to the 23rd with our good friend Scott Sanders of the Disney Cruise Line blog. Have you heard of this? Uh, no, but I'll, I'll contact Scott and find out if he needs a lackey. <laughs> it's uh, it's actually pretty good. It's a four-night Bohemian cruise with a double dip on Castaway Key, which on the oh. Dream, which is my preferred itinerary for first-time cruises on the Disney Cruise Line. Very cool. Sounds lovely. Oh. All right. Jim, yep. let's get into our, our listener question uh, and then some news. The listener question will actually prompt the news. This is uh, from Chrissy M. She sent along a survey of screenshots that she got after eating at Tiffin's in the animal kingdom. And I've eaten at Tiffin's a couple times in the last last few months. And I will tie this into my experience there. But Jim, what do you make of the first question that Tiffin's asks? Sorry, that Disney asks about Tiffin's. First question goes like this. What would you say the value for the price of the food you paid was? Excellent, very good, good, just okay, and poor. Now, Jim, I got to say, when the first question is, is how do you feel about the cost? That's a signifier of something, right? Yeah. You and I have eaten at Tiffin's and with the possible exception of the fish that stared at us. <laughs> Let me give some background there. So for listeners who, who haven't heard that show, Tiffin's offers a whole fish deep fried as an entree. And when Jim and I ordered it, the fish still had an expression on its face when it came out. And that expression was one of surprise, like the deep fryer <laughs> caught it by surprise it was uh, one minute one minute it was uh, swimming along and the next minute it was in oil that was the the look if you will on yeah, the uh, on the fish's yeah. face but anyway jim go ahead still haunts my dreams <laughs> um <laughs> where would you put tiffins from a quality per cost ratio i mean i i actually thought for the price paid it was good food i mean it's a wonderful design Great space, but at the same time, it's positioned right outside of Avatar, where people are moving at flank speed to get in there. Right. I, I wonder if it, it just isn't doing the business that Disney expected. Well, here's what I, I think. When it, when it first opened, it was fantastic. It was essentially a deluxe restaurant, you know, the, the mm -hmm. kind of restaurant you would find at a Disney deluxe hotel inside a theme park. Okay. It was fabulous food. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem was no one wanted to pay those prices for that kind of food inside a theme park. It simply didn't mm -hmm. fit in with the hurry up mentality that you see uh, a lot of people taking in a Disney theme park. And for the longest time after it opened, even though we were saying it was fabulous food, no one was going mm -hmm. there. You could walk in mm -hmm. and get a reservation, which is 
indicative of a restaurant that isn't very popular. So what, uh, what Disney started to do is to try and find a lower price point. But in order to do that, they had to cheapen the food. Mm. So the last time I was there, I had ramen soup, which when I'm in New York, good mm. ramen soup is like $16, $17 a bowl, $18 a bowl for very, very good ramen made mm. by Japanese people, surrounded, eating, surrounded by Japanese people with great ingredients, super tasty, huge bowl, $18 uh, a bowl for the most expensive ramen you can get. Disney's is $36, or literally double the price. Huh. Please tell me you could not, in fact, count the number of noodles, right? I don't know that I can eat $36 worth of noodles outside of Disney World. Inside of Disney, it was unspectacular. The broth was not great. The meat was not spectacular. I mean, it was it was not an elevated bowl of ramen that you would expect for that kind of price point. You would expect something vastly different or creative about it. It was fine for what it was. It doesn't compare with the quality of my, my local Japanese places, obviously. And at twice the cost, I'd never order it mm-hmm. again. But I think that's the thing you see with a lot of the new menu items at Tiffin's. I recently tried the chicken and waffles, which mm-hmm. was, it was fine for what it was. In terms of taste, super interesting. The waffle was like a cornbread waffle, which you don't see very often in restaurants. But the chicken was, imagine a... a like, like, are you familiar with squab or like mm-hmm. Cornish hen? Imagine yeah. half of a Cornish hen <laughs> and a waffle. Oh. Yeah. So we're talking about a ve- essentially the size of a TV dinner chick- piece of chicken with a, with a waffle. And again, for like, you know, somewhere between 35 and $40, if I recall correctly. There's no way that you can have that little bit of food equal that price with that quality at Tiffin's. And I think that's what you're, that's what you're seeing here. Oh, dear. The other questions on the survey that, uh, that Christy sent were, how, uh, did you make advanced dining reservations? How long did it take you to be greeted at the podium? How long, you know, basically wait questions. How long was the wait to be seated? How long was the wait to order? How long was the wait to get food? And then basic, you know, cleanliness atmosphere and stuff about where you're staying and, and tickets and things like that. But here's, what's, here's what I think is, is prompting this. When Tiffin's first opened up, its restaurant rating from touringplans.com users and the unofficial guide readers was somewhere between 91 and 92%, which is very good. Again, average mm-hmm. for most Disney restaurants is around 89 or 90%. So that's above average. Over the past year, though, it's dropped to 90%. And if you look at the past three months, past six months, 88%, mm-hmm. past three months, 87.7%. So clearly something's happening there. It's down almost four points over the past you know two years. And four points is huge on our restaurant surveys. To give you some example of that, the standard deviation is 0.02 on our survey. So to drop four points, especially to go below average like that, is a fairly significant development. And I think that's what we're seeing here, the slow erosion of value for money at Tiffits. I think that's what's prompting the survey. That's such a shame. That coupled with Nomad's right next door. Yeah. I mean, that, that wonderful bar. Well, that's the thing. So how, how do you fix it? I mean, they, they could lower prices, but uh, as we know from... The new Snow White addition to, to character dining at the Wilderness Lodge, which replaced Artist Point. Mm-hmm. Dis- Disney is mostly interested in revenue per plate served in their restaurants, right? Things like quality and value for money take a backseat to how much money they can make per person per night uh, at the restaurants. So what do, you, what do you do with Tiffin's? You can't charge less. Yeah. But expensive food doesn't, didn't, they, they tried the expensive good food thing once. It didn't work for them. I wonder. It's going to be a character meal. You know it. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- there is another way to go here, but I honestly don't think, I can't see 
given the amount of money that was spent on building Tiffins and the decision to position it where they positioned it right outside of of Avatar, which has become this huge driver for attendance at Animal Kingdom, but out of the three parks now that do have Club 33s, Animal Kingdom does not. Would it be a possibility that maybe this facility could be retooled, repositioned? I would be surprised at that, but uh, I don't think Disney would take a dining location out of circulation like that. I think, like we talked about earlier with uh, with the survey results from Be Our Guest, the most likely scenario for Disney to make a quick fix here is to add characters to it, right? Like I'd be very surprised if a year from now we don't see characters at Be Our Guest to help boost those ratings for a couple of reasons. One is it's a cheap and immediate fix, right? doesn't mm-hmm. cost Disney any money. They don't have to improve the food. They don't have to improve the kitchen staff. All they have to do is throw some characters in, and that's probably good for a couple point boost. But the size of the dining room at Tiffin's and the physical setup, what characters could you put in there and still turn tables? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, the, the a couple of the rooms are fairly big, but you're, you're right. Not in the uh, a couple of rooms that are relatively uh, small, too. Mm-hmm. What are the thinner nature-based Disney characters that we have? Hmm. Well, <laughs> you know, Disney Disney Nature is going to come out with a uh, with a new a new series, and it's going to be exceptionally thin characters that are fit. <laughs> <laughs> if you like sporty spice are mostly giraffe based right now, <laughs> exactly. all right so. meerkats meerkats are all the rage look how small they there are they're tiny <laughs> i want to mention one more uh, one more quick thing about uh, about restaurants though before we go when we talked about the beer guest restaurants i mentioned that i posted the dining survey data on the touring plans website for people to download and play with by themselves and one of our listeners becky took that data we posted online and did more analysis and one of the remarkable things that becky found was this satisfaction dropped more for people who are not on the Disney dining plan. That is, if you were looking at the price of the food, yeah, you were definitely concerned. But if you'd already paid for the food ahead of time and you were using the Disney dining plan, you were absolutely satisfied with the quality. In fact, there was a a huge difference in satisfaction between people who actually looked at the menu prices and those that didn't. And it's all based on the dining plan participation. That was interesting to me, that there's that much of a gap in quality ratings based on whether you're on the dining plan. When you're on the dining plan, your take on a Disney vacation really does change. You're so obsessed about getting the number of points you're allotted per day taken care of that, screw the quality, I want to make sure I used all my points. (laughs) Well, the one thing thing we have heard from virtually everyone, the, the number one thing they like about the dining plan is you can pay for it six months before you arrive on site. And once you're on site, you don't have to look at the cost of anything. Yeah. Right. And as long as you get the reservations, you don't have to worry about the price of anything that you eat. And that peace of mind is by far the number one selling point of the entire Disney dining plan. And I think what you're seeing here is on the back end of that, Mm -hmm. that if you're not looking at the fact that you pay, I think I paid almost $75 per person with tax and gratuity for a meal that was basically average. You know, if you're not looking at that, right, if it's if you're just looking at the the overall experience and not considering the price, yeah, I mean, the restaurant does about, you know, seven or eight points better on service, which is an astounding amount when you're thinking about that because plus or minus 7% on a dining survey just based on the cost mm-hmm. is remarkable. Thank you, Becky, for digging in there. Yeah, it was fantastic. Unearthing those numbers. That, that's a fascinating insight. And it certainly will be interesting to see. You know, what happens further on down the pike here with Be Our Guest? Oh, I've got this idea to go back and look at it for every restaurant that way. In fact, to do a whole analysis of how much um, the Disney dining plan, the different <laughs> dining plans affect your satisfaction. Because it's, it's an interesting point, right? 
oh, you you are not going to make friends in the Team Disney Orlando <laughs> building. I, I wonder if they've yeah. seen it too. Like when I was going through this, I'm like, well, well surely they've got to know that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If not, somebody's going to have a bad meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Early January, Len, so okay. What, well, are the, what are the odds of anyone from Disney actually listening to this show, Jim? What yeah, are the, what are the odds? Oh, that'll never happen. Okay. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll talk about our main topic, which is my trip to Alani and your history of it. All right, we'll be right back, folks. And we're back. Cue the Hawaiian music. Jim, I just got back from a few days at Alani, Disney's finest resort. So uh, every year I try and do a uh, pre a week before Christmas trip. My mm-hmm. daughter, when she finished school, this year we went to Hawaii. It was spectacular. I got to say, it was an 11-hour flight from mm-hmm. the East Coast to Hawaii, to Honolulu, direct. I don't know that I ever want to go on an 11-hour direct flight anywhere again because my, my butt was numb about four hours into that flight. Now, isn't it also a bit of a schlep from the airport to Alani itself? It's, ah, it's like half an hour. It's, not, not a, it's basically from the Orlando airport to, uh, to Disney World. It's not a big deal at all. No, it didn't. Uh, that part was uh, was absolutely fine. It was having to sit for 11 hours in a plane that was the hard part. But once you got through that, it was all worth it. So we, we arrived at Alani. My daughter had never been there before, Hannah, uh, and she brought a friend of hers. And it was funny when you arrive at Alani, so you pull up at the uh, at the entryway like you do virtually every Disney resort. But when you go in the entryway, the first thing that you see directly opposite from you is this literally postcard shaped view looking out over the Pacific Ocean. So you've got a two story sort of Disney Hawaiian lobby theme. It's a spectacular view. It's open air. There's no windows between you and the ocean, but you see uh, Disney's landscaping. You see their volcano shaped water slide you've got landscaping all around you and in the far distance you see the pacific ocean my my daughter saw this for the first time and immediately started crying and she wasn't the only one we saw that week for people who who walked in and just stopped and stared they either laughed or they cried when they saw it it's it's that perfect of a view and that is a great 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 entrance experience uh coming into the resort have you been there, Jim? No, 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 no. In fact, you know, that's the thing. I have been following Alani since the announcement in 2007. And that was where Alice and her mom lived for years and years. And then as soon as they opened, they moved to California. So I've been trying to really? invent an excuse to I get Alice back. Alice lived in Hawaii? Yeah. That Alice spent a lot of her childhood in Honolulu. And for me, it was, oh, geez, it's time to go visit my daughter. And again, trust me, I know of that 11-hour flight of which you speak. <laughs> yeah. But the cool irony is as soon as Disney opens up something that I really want to investigate, Alice moves back to California. So I've been, you know, every so often I'll quiz her, did you leave something in the condo? Can I maybe go there and check the closet? <laughs> You'll go back and see some friends that you saw when you were growing up, something like that. There you go. Yeah, it was fantastic. So the resort is U-shaped, if you will. Not unlike uh, the Wilderness Lodge, uh, but it's got 14-story towers on either side. So it's considerably taller uh, than the Wilderness Lodge. And the interesting thing about this resort is it's a mix of ho- regular hotel rooms mm-hmm. and then DVC rooms. So I, if I recall correctly, the vast majority of the rooms, not the vast majority, but the majority of the rooms are DVC. I think there's around four... I want to say 460 villas. 19 grand villas and 16 suites, whereas on the uh, hotel side, there's only 359 hotel rooms. Right, standard hotel rooms, right. And the standard hotel rooms are about 356 square feet, which is somewhere between a Disney moderate and a Disney deluxe resort, if you're familiar with Walt Disney World stuff. The interesting thing for me, though, on the hotel rooms 
are the views. So obviously there's a, we're all familiar with like a standard view hotel room of, of Disney's, uh, Disney's description. We're basically looking at the parking lot or infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. Those hotels though, again, because this is Hawaii and everything's more expensive in Hawaii range from about $500 a night to about $800 a night in 2019. So immediately those are deluxe price, deluxe resort prices. And they should be, I mean, Al Alani is Disney's best resort. These are good rooms are a little bit small for, uh, for the deluxe size. But five hundred to eight hundred dollars a night plus fourteen percent tax. They've also got an island garden view, so you get to see some of the landscaping. Those will run you five forty to eight sixty. There's a poolside gardens view. I won't go through all the prices. There's a partial ocean view because I think every resort in in Hawaii, Jim, wants mm -hmm. to make the most of their ocean views. So if you have even a glimpse of the Pacific, you've got a partial ocean view. These run up to almost nine fifty a night. Uh, if you want an ocean view hotel room. Roughly seven hundred to about uh, just under eleven hundred dollars a night, plus tax. Sleeps four people. The thing that I was surprised about is, you know, how, like Disney will add a surcharge of ten, fifteen, or twenty dollars to your room if you have a third or fourth adult mm -hmm. in your hotel room in Walt Disney World. At Alani, it's a hundred dollars per adult <laughs> per night. So that ocean view room that you have, if you've got four adults in there, twelve hundred and sixty-four dollars a night. Wow. That's a lot of that's a lot of coconuts, Jim. That it is. Now we stayed on the DVC side, and we had a, a two bedroom poolside view of uh, of it. Um, so they've also got because the DVC they've got studios, they've got one bedroom villas, two bedroom villas, and then grand villas, the three bedrooms as well. And uh, I think these are the the nice accommodations. We've I've stayed in studios, I've stayed in one bedrooms, I've stayed in two bedrooms at Alani. The main advantage of of the villa side is you get something of a kitchen, right? In the studio, you've got a little kitchenette with a, a kettle, a microwave, a small sink, uh, and a small fridge. But starting at the one bedroom and going up, you've got a full-size kitchen. That sort of offsets some of the price of the room because you can go out to the grocery store, buy some groceries, and then come back and you know eat snacks and make a few meals here and there. When you're talking about the prices of things in Hawaii, food, of course, is very expensive, but being able to buy it all uh, in a grocery store will definitely help you uh, save some money there. You've been to Hawaii though, Jim, right? Oh yeah, yes. Are you yes. familiar with Foodland, the Foodland chain of <laughs> grocery stores? <laughs> yeah, they had one of the truly spectacular produce sections. It, right. Uh, so the uh, the we were in the produce section of uh, Foodland that they were buying it, and pineapples were like a dollar fifty or dollar sixty each, mm -hmm. right? Cheap because in I think yep. you know, everywhere else, you know, pineapples are a couple bucks at least, a couple mm -hmm. bucks more. So we're, we're picking up a couple of pineapples. Laurel's like, oh, a dollar, you know, dollar, dollar fifty or dollar sixty each. Let's, mm -hmm. let's buy a bunch. And we actually got stopped by one of the employees who said, you know, if you come back on Tuesday, they're 69 cents. <laughs> I don't want you to overpay for pineapples here. <laughs> I'm like, could you imagine a pineapple for 69 cents? I mean, great, it's Hawaii and they grow there. Like, I was like, yeah. oh man, dollar sixty nine is crazy for pineapples. Come back on Tuesday, they're a buck cheaper. <laughs> wow. But the thing I love about Foodland is the food bars that they've got throughout the store that are completely Hawaiian. So there's a kimchi bar where you can get pickled vegetables. It's, it's not like a regular store where you've got like, you know, salad bar and you've got a, you know, a hot bar where you can go buy. This isn't the Whole Foods. You've got a kimchi bar. There is a poke bar where you can get fresh tuna or octopus or whatever and sort of mix it with fresh vegetables and rice. And I think that every once in a while they have a mochi bar too where you can get sort of the frozen uh, soy-based uh, desserts that are famous mm -hmm. in Japan. That's what I love about Foodland. Yeah, well, again, if you're you're going to a place, you should. I mean, that's the thing. What I loved about it was like, 
I felt like, okay, this is what, you know, it's supposed to be. This is, you know, I'm getting the authentic experience. Oh, yeah. So the other thing that I liked about Alani was they've got their own little beach cove, right? Their own little bay, if you will, with rocks that protect the bay from most of the ocean waves coming in. And this is fantastic for a couple of reasons. One is you're right on the beach uh, when you're at Alani. But two, you can send the kids out to play in the waves, and the waves are like a foot high, tops, mm-hmm. at most. So yeah, everyone's safe. There's no undertow or anything like that. You don't have to worry like I do about massive sharks coming in and uh, wanting to feed on you. You know my, about my phobia of sharks. But, you know, I went out there. I paddleboarded. You can snorkel. The resort actually has its own snorkeling reef that's separate from the uh, the beach with um, tropical fish. It's also super cold, but it's a lot of fun. There's plenty of things to do in the, in the resort. Jim, why don't you give us a little bit of a history, though? Number one, what made Disney decide that they wanted to build a resort in Hawaii? And then why did they put literally every good thing they've ever built at Alani? Like, what made them go over the top on it? First, Disney getting into the vacation club, the, the timeshare market. The first DVC, which now I guess is known as Old Key West, opened in December of, of 91. And that same period of time, Disney registered with the state of Hawaii that they wanted to get a DVC built over there. So, I mean, right from the get-go... This was always part of the master plan, and a lot, a large part of that keyed off of the truly significant, uh, or at least at that time, a number of tourists that would come over from Japan oh. and vacation at Hawaii. Let's mention this, Ruth. Uh, probably yep. half the guests that are in Alani are Japanese tourists. Mm-hmm. Virtually all the signage, all the menus, all of it is in both English and Japanese. And from the amount of Duffy and Shelley May merchandise available at Alani, you can tell that they that they are dedicating this to uh, to the Japanese market. Oh, yeah, but it was always part of the plan. But if, if you'll remember, first they get Old Key West up out of the ground, and the whole notion was that you sort of wet people's appetite into buying into the Disney timeshare thing. Mm-hmm. Michael Eisner, when he came through the door in 1984, mm-hmm. I think you had the notes that you pulled out of... Oh, the most press archives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that... Where, you know, they had the big meeting in, in January of 1985. I mean, literally, a little less than, than three months after he's been on the job. And, you know, they're looking at Disney World property and the notion of, well, where do we put the timeshares? Yeah. And ultimately, it was thought, okay, so we'll use the ones on property to whet their appetite, but the real money will be in the ones that we build around the country. So they buy the property in March of 1993 for Vero Beach, you know, because of course it's Florida. Let's build one out on the the beach. And then September of that year, they're meeting with folks in South Carolina for a resort in Hilton Head, and that's supposed to be for the golfers. And Didn't they also talk about New York? Yeah. In fact, what's kind of interesting about the one in New York is that you as the native New Yorker now, this one was going to be called Disney's Times Square Villas. It was going to be built at the corner of 42nd Street and 8th. And it was actually Tishman Realty was going to be Disney's partner on this thing. Again, I don't know if you've actually seen the concept art for it. The gimmick is that sort of a, a meteor has come crashing down at the corner of 42nd and 8th. But I don't know about the design because the, the same f- people who did... The All-Star and Pop Century were supposed to design this hotel for Disney that period, yeah. but the whole notion was 100 you know, timeshare units and offering theater packages for, of course, all the Disney shows in, in New York. But same time, out in Vail, uh, there was going to be the Disney's Mountain Lodge. But what they found was, as soon as they opened Vero Beach and 
they just weren't selling the number of units. But on the other hand, the stuff on property, the boardwalk, those things were going clean. Michael Eisner still, it's like, I gave up property at the corner of 42nd and 8th. <laughs> they're not making that property anymore, Jim. No, they're not. They're not. And Disney, at one point, they had $70 million in the ground and 35 acres at Newport Coast. Uh, that's uh, this choice piece of ocean from property in Southern California between Newport Beach and Laguna. And that was supposed to be the standalone for uh, the Disneyland Resort and for tourists visiting South Carolina, uh, uh, Southern California. Because of what happened with Vero and what happened with Hilton Head, Disney lost its nerve. And from there, you saw them really doubling down on property. I mean, you know, yeah. what's it? we had Boardwalk open in July of 96. We saw the Boulder Ridge thing open in November of 2000. Do you remember when they announced... The Eagle Pines DVC and how was that, that the, was was that the Fort Wilderness? How the Fort Wilderness one was announced? I don't believe that was the timeline on that one. I I mean, what, so what was, was Eagle Pines then? I don't remember it. Oh, Eagle Pines was that they were going to take nine holes out of the Eagle Pines golf course. Oh, I do gonna, remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, you know the whole thing. It was it was going to be a classic Florida resort. It was like like the uh, the Misner's Brothers yeah, uh, yeah. hotels of. Of Boca Raton and and Palm Beach and but you know again they announced this in July of 2001. Yeah. Forty days later is 9/11. Suddenly nobody is going to Disney World and yeah. you already had the Disney Institute that was bleeding at this point because no one was going to Disney vacation. They certainly weren't going to go take adult education courses. Yeah, it just didn't look right in the recession, right? Yeah. So they scratched Eagle Pines entirely. And that never came back. Well, the interesting thing is that's where the Four Seasons got built, and a good chunk of that land also got ceded over to Golden Oaks. Ah, okay. So they, they did build on it, but they just didn't build EVC. They weren't even more profitable. Yeah. But, you know, again, it takes a, about 10 years of ridiculous success on Disney property for Disney to finally, it's like, okay, let's revisit these offsites. And again, we've done our homework. We've, we've, we've registered with the state of Hawaii. And again, those numbers for Japanese tourism oh, yeah. had stayed solid. So it's like, all right, let's start looking for property. And sure enough, October of, of 2007, they find 21 acres that they purchased in the uh, Koleolani Resort in Honolulu. We'll start in 2008. It's an $800 million project. And again, just what you described, you know, how they work backwards from the notion of this is the view we want. We yeah. want people to arrive, and let's build backwards from that. And and again, this is a Joe Rody. Uh, oh, you can tell his his fingerprints are all over it. Yeah. Um, but the the interesting thing to me is this. So the Alani sits between two other resorts. To uh, mm -hmm. if you're looking out at the ocean, the immediate right is a Four Seasons, and then on the left is a Marriott property. But it's a Marriott property sort of farther along. And the, I think the Four Seasons was a, was actually a Marriott before it was a Four Seasons. The Four Seasons does not make bad hotels, right? Four mm -hmm. Seasons resorts are good. They're world-renowned for their style and their luxury. The Four Seasons is nowhere near as pretty as Alani. Not, it's not even in the same ballpark. And th that's mm -hmm. where I think the Disney Imagineers and their, their ability to frame views really show the difference between what they do and what sort of standard hotel room hotel designers do. You walk over the Four Seasons and it's lovely, right? And the service is excellent. And parts of it are very, very nice. It's sort of sleek and modern and all white and blue. But if you look at the views that you get 
at various places around the resort. Nothing, nothing compares at the Four Seasons with what they've got at the Lawney. And the same thing over at the Marriott, but even on an even, it's even more different. Like uh, the Marriott looks like a Marriott hotel, credited with an open air lobby and whatnot, but no hotel chain in that immediate area does anything like Disney does with the views of the Lawney. The landscaping is better. The theming is not even close anywhere mm-hmm. else. It, it really did have done a fantastic job throughout that entire resort to, to give it sort of the Disney look and feel. When Disney decided that they weren't going to do something with the Newport Beach property, who did they turn around and sell the property to but Marriott? Oh, did they? Yeah, and in fact, I remember talking with the Imagineer about they had this lovely Venetian-inspired resort with canals, and it broke his heart because, again, they don't make a lot of available beachfront property in in California. And to lose this primo opportunity because, well, we got cold feet. And again, you got your, your somewhat standard Marriott. You know, it's studio, bedrooms, you know, suites, and and the clubhouse, and get out. I'm sure it's all fine, but like I said, the uh, the theming is is second to none. The other thing that I really like about the uh, resort is they've got all kinds of activities for, for kids and all kinds of activities for adults. So I mentioned the snorkeling reef that you can hop into. It's uh, chilled salt water, mm-hmm. but there are colorful fish throughout mm-hmm. it. You can snork as much as you want. Uh, in that there's also a uh, an interactive game that you play. It's mm. it's almost uh, like the HGP's World Showcase Adventure at Epcot. Uh, so you're handed a small iPad-like tablet. You walk around the resort and you discover things. And as you do, oh. as you as you go through this adventure, things turn on and off in the resort. Oh. So fire shoots out of the volcano, or you know you see turtles crossing a stream, or something like that. It's really uh, fantastic, and it. Uh, the game is fairly extensive, so it's a small resort, you know, relatively mm-hmm. speaking. It's not the size of Epcot or anything like that. But to play that entire interactive game probably mm-hmm. takes most kids anywhere from one to three hours. And there's an inside version on the, you know, the three days a year that it, it rains in Hawaii. There's an indoor version that they can play in the lobby that's about you know, 15 minutes to half an hour to play as well. Wow. They're seeking out the Menehune, right? The, the, the Menehune, exactly. Very good, Jim. Yes, yeah. the, so the, the garden spirits. That mm-hmm. live in uh, that live in Alani. The idea is that you have to uh, invoke the uh, the Minihune to help mm-hmm. people who are in need around the resort. So super fun. Also, we we need to talk about the restaurants, Jim. All of mm-hmm. the food tastes better in Hawaii because you're in Hawaii and it's locally grown. But every single restaurant here is very good. My favorite is the uh, I guess the the signature table service restaurant is Ama Ama, mm-hmm. which serves breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It is on the edge of the property, directly overlooking the ocean. The most difficult tables to get are those at sunset, obviously, because it faces west, and so does the Disney Resort, and you can watch the, the sunset through it. Everything we ate there was absolutely fantastic. The steaks, the seafood, the side dishes, there were very few things that I wouldn't order again. That was good. Also good, they have a character meal because, you know, it's Disney, so mm-hmm. they've got a, um, a restaurant called, what was it, Makahiki? So in the morning, you meet Mickey Mouse, there's Minnie, Pluto, and Donald, are available. It's a standard breakfast buffet with all the bacon, eggs, sausage stuff you expect. But because it has a large Japanese tourist contingent, you can also get a standard Japanese breakfast. So broiled fish, miso soup, rice, and so on. It's a really interesting combination of things. Have you ever had Japanese be- breakfast before, Jim? Yeah. Well, again, but my daughter, the foodie, ah. drags her extremely reluctant father out into the world. And <laughs> Yes, it's an adventure, isn't it? The broiled fish is is fairly standard. It's a it's a lot of protein. 
the mm-hmm. morning, which I guess is good because uh, protein makes you feel less hungry longer. So there, there might be something to that. I ate so much of the standard buffet for breakfast. I don't think I ate lunch, which is both terrifying and funny at the same time. Like mm-hmm. it was a lot of food. But then also, uh, this is sort of like my sleeper hit. Mm-hmm. It's Mama's Snack Shack, which serves oh, fish and chips. Yes. Oh, my God. The best fish and chips. First of all, it's enough fish and chips for two people, but mm-hmm. it's super fresh. They also do chicken fingers for kids, and I think they do a fried shrimp as well, sandwiches. But oh, amazing food. You can grab that, sit out on the patio, smell the ocean breeze. It's, I think it's like near constant 80 degrees every time you're in Hawaii. But you've got a fantastic view. The food's really good. Grab a drink by the pool bar, uh, sit and eat your fish and chips. It's a fantastic experience. So, Jim, a lot of you clearly hit, right? It was... It was at 80% occupancy when we checked in, and you could tell that as we were getting closer to Christmas, the occupancy rate jumped up. Was, is Disney thinking about expanding this? Are they going to do more on the West Coast, or is, is this it? The thing about Alani is that this resort started under a cloud. I mean, do you remember, literally, I think it was oh, yeah. two weeks prior to the opening, August 29, 2011, on the 12th, Disney actually suspended timeshare sales at Alani and fired three executives, the DVC executives, including the then president, Jim Lewis, because they'd figured out that they'd screwed up the formula. Very, very late in the game, Disney was going over the books and it's like, wait a minute, you know, we're not going to be able to turn a profit. Uh, so, the- so let's, uh, let's, let's give some background to our, to our listeners. Mm-hmm. When you buy into the Disney's Vacation Club, you, you buy the points for somewhere, I think it's north of $100 a point. And the points are the things that you use, like mm-hmm. cash, to pay for the room. But in addition to paying for the points, which you pay for once, there's an annual maintenance fee that you pay just for sort of resort upkeep. And apparently, shortly after after Disney had been selling these these rooms, they found out that the maintenance fee that they had proposed in the contract to charge was mm-hmm. drastically low. Oh, yeah. And in fact, to give you some idea of the blowback from this. I mean, in 2011, in you know the, about six or eight months before Alani opened, Disney purchased land in National Harbor, Maryland. It's just outside of Washington, D.C., with, with the idea that we're so confident in Alani and what this potentially is going to be, let's get back into these standalone resorts. And mm-hmm. so let's do one outside of Washington, D.C. And they were so shaken by what had happened here that uh, November of 2011 they pulled the plug on they had a, a 500 room resort hotel designed to go into National Harbor and he's like oh god so they actually stepped away and wow the interest interesting thing is now we are seven eight years now in seven in, years and change yeah yeah and if you go over the history of Alani there have been Tweaks and changes, I mean, especially, uh, for example, to the pool area, you know, the interesting thing is that they opened and they realized that people wanted sort of an infinity pool view kind of a thing. Oh, and so yeah. It's a great infinity view. So the infinity view uh, pool wasn't uh, original to a lot of you? It's more a case of, I came all this way for the view and I don't have the view I expected. So it's like, okay, we can tweak that. We can, we can do that. Wow. This was one of the things that poor Joe Rody came up against. This project, you know, Disney buys the land in October of 2007. Fall of 2008, we had the huge financial correction. And right. that affected world tourism. That affected not just, you know, us in the States. That was a worldwide financial crisis. And as strong as the Japanese tourism has been, 
Japan's been dealing with its own financial issues for quite some time. Oh, yeah, 30 years <laughs> or at least 20, right? It's been in sort of either a, a slow recession or a tepid recovery for the better part of two decades. That's it, exactly. So I think at this point, Disney is confident enough in Alani that they do want to look into expanding. And in fact, it, my understanding is that as you you tour the resort, there are definitely expansion pads there that you can sort of get the sense of, okay, so that's that's where the next tower would go or, or that yeah. sort of thing. But again, they've kept a foot on the brakes for you know seven or eight years now. And, and now finally, there's been some discussion about, okay, maybe we could look at expanding. But remember... Disney doesn't operate in a vacuum. And remember what right. happened in 92 when Euro Disneyland opened and there was a financial drag in the company. There's a lot of folks at Disney right now who are just sort of like, okay, let's get Galaxy's Edge open. And yeah. when it's the, the monstrous success that it's supposed to be, then you know we can spread the joy around and maybe slide a little money to Alani and, and do some expanding there. But 80% occupancy, is that what you're saying? It was 80% the week before Christmas, and uh, I believe it was going up the closer we got because there was definitely an uptick in uh, in activity around the lobby, especially like the Saturday before Christmas. I think maybe the, uh, the way that Christmas fell this year where you could have gone like either the week before or the week of Christmas and still had plenty of time left off at the after that for the week after that. Mm -hmm. I think that probably affected some people's uh, plans. So yeah, as we were leaving on the 23rd, we definitely saw an uptick in the number of people uh, checking in. Again, I don't mean to embarrass Mr. Lewis, the president of the DVC, the, the guy who, event who eventually took the fall for the bad numbers and getting the maintenance fees wrong. Because it's like, as Len will tell you, over the history of Disney, there have been a number of times where somebody got the numbers wrong and filed the long report. In fact, did, did you come across when you were at Buzz's archive for the, the report where they, they were absolutely certain the place that we should build Walt Disney World was Ocala? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and again, this is back in the slide rule days where yeah. you know, Buzz is checking his message like, oh, 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 wait a minute. No, no, no. Yeah, hold on, hold on. Orlando. <laughs> yeah, I meant Orlando. I got my O's wrong. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, this sort of stuff happens. And, and yeah, but, Get, they overcame it, and it's a, it's a killer resort. And, and oh, like Disney's I said, best resort by a wide margin. I would uh, I would go back if it wasn't for the like I said the eleven hour plane ride. Absolutely fantastic for it. The every the people who build it, the people who run it, should be extremely proud of uh, what they've done, what they've accomplished. Well, and like I said, if I can just convince Alice to remember that she left something in a closet in the condo in you know Honolulu, I'm uh, there. There's always okay. a, there's always school at the University of Hawaii. There we go. <laughs> All right, folks, that's going to do it for our show today. We are produced fabulously by the ebullient Aaron Adams. Don't forget to go onto iTunes and along with rating Don Ho's Tiny Bubbles, rate our show too and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.